Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Charthus. In the last episode, in a little trailer, we heard about the real secret of the Eleusinian mysteries. The abduction of Persephone, the heart of the story, is most likely a set of coded instructions for how to preserve wheat so that it lasts for several years. That story is crucial to the story of Oceans of Grain, a new book by Scott Nelson, a historian at the University of Georgia. After years of working on it, Scott's book was published on the 22nd of February this year. Two days later, Russia invaded Ukraine. Talk about timely. Now, I'm not a hot-take kind of a guy, so I was really delighted when Scott Nelson turned up in Rome to teach because it gave me a chance to have some proper conversations. And there are just two problems with that. One is that Oceans of Grain covers so much ground, from ancient Ukrainian folk tales to the First Banks, to the American Civil War, to the Trans-Siberian Railway, to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, to the invention of nitroglycerin, and you get the picture, that a single long conversation, no matter how interesting, would tax anyone's stamina. So we divided it into three, transport, finance, and empire. But that raises the second problem, because of course it's impossible to separate things that neatly. But we did try, so here's the first in a trilogy to bring this season of this podcast to a close. We're starting with transport, in large measure because that's where the story of grain starts, as a food that can be kept in good condition as it moves around the place. And that movement probably began with people in what's now Ukraine called Chumaki. These were the first organized traders, moving wheat long distances along routes known as the Black Paths. And they were there, shifting grain, thousands of years ago. How do we know? So there's a piece in Science in 2019 uh, that uh, was really about the spread of Yersinia pestis, the, the, the plague, and um, using next-generation genome sequencing, they look inside the teeth, they identify um, how the plague travels, and it does travel from basically just south of Kiev, all the way to Manchuria, all the way to Sweden. And it does so in a short period of time. And we know from the next generation genome sequencing in the in the teeth of the people who we've recovered along those routes, um, that no people have traveled that far, that there's no evidence that humans have traveled nearly that far. So there must be some other way that this little pest, which uh, has to live inside the stomach of a, of a rat or uh, the, the stomach of a human, um, you know, running through the bloodstream, that uh, it has to jump a short distance. And so to me, the, uh, the sort of logical explanation for that is grain. And that's, that was the explanation made in, in science and nature, uh, these, these two breakthrough pieces. And what it suggests to me is that we've been trading for longer than we've been planting. 
longer than we've been farming, longer than we've been empiring, <laughs> that, uh, that in a certain sense, uh, trade may actually be, as Adam Smith says, um, you know, the t tendency to truck and barter might actually be uh, something that's very, very deep in our, uh, our DNA, I suppose. So if, the, if the, the plague is moving, the rats are moving, feasting on the wheat that's moving, mm -hmm. but the people are not moving, that suggests that I might take it to the village exactly. over there and somebody else would take it on exactly. from there. Exactly right. How was that organized? <laughs> uh, we, we have no idea. We have no idea. It, luckily, uh, I mean, oxen are available in this period, the 2800 BC. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite clear that something like, you know, Orok and oxen, descendants of Orok, are, are the things that are carrying this uh, from place to place. I would guess that the trade is actually a little bit longer distance than just the next town, that um, it, it moves relatively quickly, you know, f uh, over 500 years. Um, that suggests that there are perhaps longer uh, trade networks, but no, nothing more than, say, 40 or 50 miles. So that, that tendency to truck and barter is interesting because it's, uh, it's not traditionally the way that Marxists think about trade. We, they think about trade as being – or modern Marxists think about trade as being something that's associated with capitalism. I think that this tendency to truck and barter is, is, is also kind of deep in our um, – what makes us human. Is it – is it possible then to see traces of the actual routes that the grain was taking? Um, yes, we have the Varangian corridor. We have, uh, you know, in the in the eighth and ninth uh, century, we've got other routes. Precisely where those routes are is difficult to say, um, but it is clear that there is long distance trade, and and I think this is uh, to me the the story of the Chumaki. Uh, part of Ukrainian folklore. In the 1860s, a folklorist travels around Ukraine, and the people that he interviews say they have Chumaki songs, they have burial traditions, they have uh, horns that they play when someone dies. And they tell him that uh, the Chumaki are older than uh, the Greek Empire, that they're older, that they've, got, that they've been traveling these paths forever. And if you visit the Kurgans that are um, the places, the burial sites, uh, these big mounds, uh, it's clear that there are people who are something like traders um, in you know, prehistoric uh, period and certainly uh, in, in historic periods. And what are they doing? They're taking grain um, over long distances, along with leather, along with slaves, along with uh, other goods. Uh, over over these long distances, and that those black paths, as they're called, Chornishlaki, are the to me the kind of foundation of the world that they're really how humans interact. Uh, some uh, anthropologists have suggested that gossip is one of the reasons we have language, uh, <laughs> an ability to kind of uh, retain information about people and to uh, categorize and sort people that are larger than a single group. Um, and I think connected with gossip is also this way in which we pass on uh, information and goods and things like that, uh, that, that are also kind of fundamentally part of what it is to be human. And one of the things in the book that fascinated me is that the um, the Ukrainian word for the Milky Way. Yes, it's a Chumatsky. Uh, yeah, it's a Chumatsky way. It's, it's that, that, uh, partly it's, I think, because, uh, the Chumatsky way is, is, it's, uh, the, these Chumaki who are traveling 
are using the Milky Way to orient themselves to identify which direction to go so they don't lose their, uh, lose their way at night when it's very dark and can't quite find the, the black paths. And of course, the, the other thing that's remarkable is that Chuma, the word for plague, is, has the same root as, as Chumaki. So, so Chuma is the word for plague. Chumaki is the word for a person who carries uh, things from place to place. And also, we now know, carried the plague from place to place. Amazing. Coming forward, mm-hmm. I guess the next big move is is that it's not moving over land, but it's moving by sea. Right. And you you say that the Greeks had ships that were capable of of carrying four hundred tons of grain, something like that. Right, um, right, and uh, that ten thousanders they were called, and uh, they they were designed for carrying grain from the Black Sea region, where it was uh, lots of flat plains, lots of fresh water, to the Greek city-states, to the, to the Aegean Sea. And um, the Aristoi, the people that, that, that are the kind of leaders in this environment, also make their money from this trade. <laughs> the, you can think about the Iliad and the Odyssey as being stories that are kind of trying to plump up the Aristoi uh, to a certain extent, right? That they're uh, uh, telling their side of the story because there are plenty of Greek uh, stories about uh, how awful these these traders are. Um, there's a, there's ships, there aren't ships that large that are traveling the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea until the 16th century with the Spanish galleons. So um, this this period of the ancient Greek world is distinctive in that it has very, very, very large ships um, that are designed primarily for, for shifting wine and grain over long distances. In Greek times, the grain is moving from the edge of the empire to feed the center of the empire. Right, right. And... The way that many empires work, the, the Qing Empire, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, is that there's usually a circle um, of, of grain areas that provide food for the center. And in return, the center provides, uh, <laughs> besides the leadership, quote unquote, uh, effectively uh, um, you know, forcing these people to, to produce grain, it provides leather and pottery and other, other things like that. And then the outer edge of that grain region tends to be where the arms of the empire are, its armies. So, so the, the grain t- in, in most empires that, that I'm familiar with have this measurement. And, and the grain, of course, comes into the center and then is measured out. Uh, so this is what the milestones are in the Roman Empire, is how far away is this site? How costly is it to get? to this site. Well, it's 57, you know, it's mile marker 57. So that's, um, that's a lot harder to get to than 37. And so, um, you, you know, the cost effectively in terms of grain, uh, about what it's going to take to dominate this, this part of your empire. Uh, so the milestone is simultaneously a measure of distance, cost, and, uh, power of the empire. Uh, armies take grain from that, uh, core and, and move outwards. Um, Roman soldiers had a sword and a scythe, and the scythe was for impromptu harvesting of the places that you're, you happen to be dominated. Jumping, jumping rapidly forward, uh-huh. we've we've gone from overland to sea, mm-hmm. um, and then we come back to overland with railroads mostly, I guess. Right, right, and so what what causes that kind of shift? Hmm. So. Friction is the, is the key th- thing to think about when you're, if you think about grain as, as stored energy, 
Um, and you think about water, uh, it's, it's a perfect, it's an excellent place, way of distributing energy over a, a long distance because the friction is so much less. Um, a railway provide, is, an, is a kind of adjunct initially to water. And you want to build a railway to deep water so that you can bring goods to the water and, and, and put them in. Um, even today, 90% of international trade takes place in container ships. So water is, is still our primary method of, you know, delivering things from place to place. Um, but rails are, railroads are a funny thing, right? Because they're a kind of monopoly corridor, right? Uh, unlike roads, uh, unlike the sea, um, you, you have an institution that builds the rail and that institution is simultaneously the one that's operating along the rail. So there are all sorts of peculiar economic functions that it, uh, happens to serve. It's, it's given, uh, the kind of, uh, dynastic rights to, um, the right to kind of, um, take right of way to build from one place to another. Um, and so there's often a question about whether you nationalize these or not, whether you whether the empire takes control of them or whether they allow private citizens to do so. Um, the United States allows private citizens to do so, and those people end up running the country. <laughs> uh, Germany ends up uh, dominating most of the major cores, as, as does Russia, and it ends up uh, strengthening the army and, um, you, you know, uh, in, in some ways shaping very fundamentally how it is that people consume grain and where they get their grain from. You're, you're very keen in the book, you're very keen on nitroglycerin. Right. I mean, it's almost a hymn to nitroglycerin. <laughs> and, and clearly that has major effects on the movement of well, grain primarily, but, mm -hmm. but all sorts of other things too. So how does that work? What does nitroglycerin deliver? So nitroglycerin is discovered, I want to say the 1730s, something like that. It's initially used as... Uh, for expanding the uh, heart, you know, you, you ingest it. And uh, it's stabilized nitroglycerin, though, once it finally stabilized, and around 1868, um, becomes a very powerful instrument for penetrating the lithosphere. Basically, human capacity to penetrate our lithosphere depends fundamentally on uh, nitroglycerin because it can exert um, 125,000 atmospheres uh, in, in a very brief instant. Um, it's, it's, uh, more than, um, 50 times the power of gunpowder. It's, it's fantastic. It's of course, uh, incredibly explosive. Uh, you shake it and it leads to the sort of chain reaction that is, that is, uh, really, really just an impossibly powerful chemical reaction. And, um, we know it's 1868 that it's finally stabilized because every mountain in, uh, Europe and the United States and uh, much of um, South America are penetrated between 1868 and 1872. So in the space of four years, humans have penetrated, all, created these tunnels through uh, the major mountains uh, in the world. And that's where you get around the world in 80 days, which comes out, uh, I think, around 1877, 78, is a story really about the world that's been created when you can go uh, through mountains for the first time. Um, it, of course, it's also very important for ports because we're, we're talking about, you know, friction. We want to eliminate the friction for delivery. Uh, the, if you want to collect grain, you want to be in a place that's got the deepest port that's most accessible for uh, relatively large ships. And not only that, but um, also allow those ships to pour out the grain into lighters or something like that and, and immediately turn around, so make it very attractive. 
Antwerp terraforms Antwerp, right? So the Belgians terraform Antwerp. They cut through the Scheldt. They tear down all their walls. They uh, or almost all the city walls. They blast until they get um, very deep canals that kind of surround Antwerp. And that becomes Antwerp becomes it, it, in the 17th century. It's a powerful place, but it's a minor city in um, the 18th century. By the 19th century, by 1871, 72, it's the biggest port in Europe. You know, it's and it feeds. Uh, it becomes the place that feeds uh, much of Europe. The Netherlands, not to be outdone, uh, does the same thing in Rotterdam and blasts Rotterdam, uh, blasts through the hook of hook of Holland. Um, they blast another canal route from Holland uh, to um, Amsterdam, and then Germans can eat their grain, uh, eat their bread um, that comes from Chicago. Right. It's possible to get this very, very cheap food and it can come along the Rhine, which is very important. Uh, it means, you know, the Rhine has been canalized initially to, you know, allow uh, the internal movement of food. It um, it ultimately becomes a place for moving uh, external food, food from very, very far away. And again, it's water all the way. So um, it's quite cheap to um uh, to, to send that grain and you can uh, I think that the the shocking thing about nitroglycerin is no one in the 17th or the 18th century would have thought that you would go <laughs> 2000 miles away to get your grain it's like the idea of like sh shoeing your horse in you know starting in New York shoeing your horse in Scotland and then bringing it back you know it just seems impossible no one would do that why in the world would you get uh your bread from that far away but it becomes possible to cross the Atlantic cheaply and easily, and and that's kind of revolutionary. And do Suez and Panama figure into this? Suez is um, is actually uh, very important here because the Suez Canal, of course, shortens the route from Britain to India, uh, shortens the route from Britain to China, um, and shortens the route from Europe to to those places. The thing about the Suez Canal, though, is that you can't send sailboats through the Suez. And so um, steamships can go uh, fine through that. And so there are all these East Indiamen and very, very large ships, you know, five masts that previously had traded between Europe, um, mostly Britain and India for bringing tea and things like that, that had previously gone all the way around Southern Africa to get there. Now they don't have to do that. But... <laughs> <laughs> There's an excess of these very, very large ships that are suddenly rendered redundant by the Suez Canal. And once that happens, the U.S. is the beneficiary to this, effectively, because these very, very large ships um, can now go back and forth between New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and on the, on the West Coast, and um, London, Liverpool, and Antwerp on the East Coast. And so there's just a tremendous number of ships that are available suddenly to fill the oceans with grain. And and they're not going back empty because they're taking all the people who want to leave Europe and, and find the promised land in America. Right. The peculiar force of all of this grain is uh, what I call Ricardo's paradox. Other, other economists uh, call it, other historians and economists call it this too, but Ricardo's paradox is why would anyone improve the capacity to produce grain because it's only going to make landlords, uh, make rents go down, which is going to hurt landlords. And so why would landlords do this? Um, this is a serious problem. All of this cheap grain is uh, the 40% drop in the price of grain in the 1860s and 70s brought on by, by nitroglycerin has this effect of lowering rents, 
which leads to unemployment in the countryside in Europe. And you've got these ships uh, that have brought all of this grain from the United States to Europe that go back sometimes empty. And so uh, that's where we get steerage from, is a very, very cheap journey from Europe to the United States in the very same compartments that have brought grain from the United States to Europe. So, I mean, this is a, this is a, a, a detour, but they don't convert the ship in any way they just put people where the grain was <laughs> they they sweep it out i suppose they they um there are uh initially i think that there are some walls that they have to take down and put back up and things like that um but yeah people are basically traveling in these very large parts of the ship that had uh been previously filled with grain yeah, yeah. and the tra- and i mean the, i'm sort of gobsmacked by by the ramifications, but the Trans-Siberian Railroad is built for wheat? (laughs) Russia very, very, very much wants a deep, a warm deep water port. And Odessa is is an excellent one. It's part of the the Russian Empire. Uh, But it is blocked by Istanbul. And Russia sees Istanbul as a real threat to its uh, power. Um, they, you know, the Russians rename Istanbul in their own heads Tsargrad, and the plan is to take Istanbul. Uh, they fight, you know, ten, ten wars to, to get it. Um, so, <laughs> the idea, the idea that you can uh, produce grain um, in the eastern part of Russia, which which does happen, and then drop it in a deep port uh, in Manchuria is very attractive. And so the Trans-Siberian Railway. Initially, the, the, the formal plan is for it to go, you know, all the way east. But the secret plan is for it to go to Port Arthur, uh, in Manchuria. And that's, that's, uh, um, it's very exciting, very, for, for Russia to have this deep water port that can unload its grain, um, and, and sell it to the world again. Uh, but it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> it, it goes. It actually goes quite well. Uh, Russia does a great job uh, building Harbin Station, which is the, the one of these convergence points, uh, the place where it ships off into Port Arthur. Um, it, it builds a highly uh, centralized railway corridor. Uh, it's, it's beautifully maintained. Uh, but Japan is not too happy about um, this because Japan has just. It, it turned out it had been forced to give it back to China, Manchuria, back to China. And it turned out it was Russia's doing. Um, Russia just waltzes in and effectively buys um, this Manchuria. And so Japan declares war on Russia and uh, attacks Port Arthur and, and shuts it off. Um, that, that whole area of Manchuria is very, very important. You, you can't get industrialization in Japan without um, Manchuria. Uh, that's where you get your steel. That's where you get your iron. That's where you get um, uh, lots of uh, uh, chemicals and things like that. It's it's an amazing place for other things besides wheat. The plan for uh, Russia is for it to be a wheat port. Uh, it becomes much, very much more than that. Does does the Trans Siberian Railway continue despite the inability to move wheat, or does wheat move to to Vladivostok and and on from there? It doesn't. It doesn't move from uh, to Vladivostok. It's it's. Um, part, partly it's a timing issue that Vladivostok is only, you know, open part of the time because of the ice. Um, no, Port Arthur would have been a great place, uh, to, to release grain and Manchuria would have been a, uh, rather nice place to grow grain, but, um, but that doesn't happen. And so Russia's, you know, invested millions and millions of rubles in this 
plan to to go all the way to Manchuria. And the funds are coming primarily from French investors, many uh, pensioners and things like that in Paris, who have bought these railway bonds, and they'll never be paid off. They'll never be paid off once once Russia loses uh, Manchuria to Japan. We're going we're to deal with that in, a, in another episode of the podcast. But just coming back to this whole idea of getting the grain out, mm. what we see right now mm. in the Black Sea is kind of a... Um, an echo, a mirror of the way things were during the Great War, even before that, where the Bosphorus is a choke point and, and where they could, Turkey could, could close off exports of grain. So what can we learn today from how that played out before? I mean, I know there weren't mines in the waters around Odessa before. Mm-hmm. But but what do you think that tells us about where we might see things going in the Black Sea now? If you think about the world, not as nations, not as capitals, but primarily as black paths connecting one region to another for the delivery of food and things like that. The center of the world from 300 AD forward, uh, if not earlier, is Byzantium, Constantinople, Istanbul. It's the center of the world. It's the way things get from the Black Sea to Europe. It's the way food comes uh, to feed the whole Mediterranean. It's it's vital. It's crucial. It's uh, the fact that Erdogan stopped military transport into the Black Sea. Uh, really, actually, uh, once the war was declared, um, really foiled Putin's plans because he, he, he probably would have put more ships in the Black Sea, more military ships in. But at that point, no military ships could go in to through the Straits of the Bosphorus. If you could clip the pulse of the world, the place that you would clip it is Istanbul. And uh, there, are, there are a tremendous number of container ships that pass back and forth through Istanbul every day. And that uh, there, there have been ships that have been passing back and forth through that route for a very long time. You can tax it. You can stop it. Um, what does this say about the, the present? Um, if I were Erdogan, I would be a little bit concerned that Russia's uh, increasing excitement about controlling all the northern part of the Black Sea is just a kind of um, prelude to Russia's 2,000-year-old dream of controlling Istanbul. Um, and, I, and I say that, uh, you know, that's, that seems impossible, right? Russia's not even 2,000 years off. But Prince Oleg nails his uh, shield to the gates of Istanbul in 982. Um, the Varangian Corridor in which uh, 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 what the predecessors to the Russians, you know, are obsessed with this important and critical port. So how does the grain get out of Ukraine? How does Ukrainian grain get out of Ukraine next month? Yes, that's a, that's a serious problem. And uh, of course, the potential is you, you want to make a humanitarian corridor that moves grain from Odessa through the Bosphorus Straits to North Africa, to Nigeria, to uh, Egypt, to all of these places that, that need the grain desperately. And the difficulty is if the UN were to kind of enforce this 
uh, corridor for the delivery of grain. It might, it, it would be, it might be seen as comparable to a no-fly zone in kind of pushing the UN a little bit further into the conflict with Russia. We, there's, there are the mines to deal with, of course, as well. <laughs> for a while, Russia was saying that the only way that it would allow grain to leave the, uh, the Black Sea is by, um, abolishing all the sanctions against Russia. Uh, there seems to be some movement on that. Uh, but I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, there's been talk of a green corridor that, you know, sends grain by rail through Europe. But because grain is so cheap per pound, because the railway corridors are somewhat different, because you really can't send that much grain uh, by rail, you can send, you know, uh, half a million tons, you know, a month. Uh, by by rail, a single grain ship can do that in a day. We're talking about um, measures that 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 aren't really going to fix this fundamental thing, which is that you need a deep port on the Black Sea, which passes through the Straits of the Bosphorus and feeds the rest of the world, as it has since the days of Constantine. What will happen in the Black Sea? Nobody knows. All we do know is that getting Ukrainian grain out is really important, as it always has been. Scott Nelson, author of Oceans of Grain, underlining the importance of transport to move grain from where it grows to where it's eaten. Next time, we're going to be talking about finance and how the wheat trade created so many aspects of the modern financial system. I'll put a link to his book in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com and maybe this is a good time to say that if you enjoy this podcast, it really helps if you rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts, because that helps to attract new listeners. And if you really appreciate the show, consider becoming a supporter by visiting eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. And know that you'll be helping to make new episodes happen and, very concretely, to letting me offer free transcripts. That's all for this time. So from me, Jeremy Chuffus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.